office rat. Yeah, that's a great reputation to have. <laughs> well, uh, hello there, Beacon. Uh, fellow college students, since I'm in seminary, grad school. Uh, if you're wondering who I am, my name is Chris again, as, as Francis has already introduced me as. And uh, it's a privilege to speak to you today. Um, you know, I hope that tonight will just be an encouragement to you. Uh, maybe some of you came in today hoping to hear Francis again, because just three times last week was just not enough, maybe at WACF. Uh, yeah, so. Uh, but joking aside, um, I'm thankful for just the opportunity to preach to you, having been in your shoes before uh, in undergrad. And I, and I also know like how critical that time is in college. Uh, you're away from your parents. You have some freedom. Uh, but at, at the same time, it's an opportunity and stewardship that you have um, to really focus on Christ during this period. Uh, with that said, uh, please take out your Bibles uh, as we look at our passage for tonight. And the passage we'll be looking at is Philippians chapter 1, 27, verse 30. So we'll be continuing on in our series in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you for just the opportunity and privilege that we have to open your word. Um, and I pray that you would uh, just help me to, to speak clearly, but also that uh, we might all be challenged here tonight by your spirit uh, to live in a way that... that uh, really magnifies uh, Christ as well as uh, exemplifies to the world just how much Christ matters to us, Lord. Thank you again for this time that we have. We ask for your strength today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So uh, two months ago, uh, that is August 2018, uh, uh, marked the two-year anniversary that I became, quote-unquote, a citizen of Southern California. Uh, a citizen of SoCal. You see, I was born and raised in uh, Sacramento, California, and after uh, finishing my undergrad uh, at UC Art, I got my first job in San Francisco. So I lived in SF, worked in SF, was a part of a church in SF uh, for basically eight years. So, yeah, I'm old. Um, so, <laughs> um, basically, I loved SF, and I, f I, I found my identity in that city where I would consider myself a citizen uh, of SF, San Francisco, even though I wasn't born and raised there. My life was wrapped up in that city, the, the friends that I had made. I was an integrated citizen of that city. And with being a citizen of SF also came responsibilities, uh, came a sense of uh, obligations, uh, if you put it. Uh, naturally, you know, I had to cheer for the, the SF Giants, who I like to remind you, won three World Series titles in, in the past decade, and the Golden State Warriors, who won three NBA championships in the past decade as well. And this may be the last opportunity I have to preach to you guys, because <laughs> sitting in the seats here are probably Dodgers and Lakers fans. But, yeah. but the idea is, there's a sense of obligation for you to, to kind of cheer for your, your home team, right? 
uh, you, the teams that are, belong to your, your city, your hood. Okay. <laughs> okay. So alongside with that too is a love for food. In San Francisco, I loved and loved food, and San Francisco became known for uh, their um, dry fried chicken wings from Santung, okay? Uh, these French pastries from this uh, place called Bee Patisserie. And SF is known as a foodie city, and I became a foodie, foodie because that came along with living in the city. But now, my transition to LA. Fall 2016, I moved down here to SoCal, and my allegiance began to shift. My new identity as a citizen of SoCal came with obligations. And while even though I didn't identify and, uh, with being a Dodgers or Lakers fan, I, I at least sympathized with guys like Francis and, and Winston, you know. Um, and that, that just came with part of, I guess, being a part of, uh, of SoCal now and transitioning in my identity, my citizenship. Well, with that idea of citizenship, I said again, it comes with responsibilities and obligations. And one of those obligations was boasting about just how much traffic I endure here in SoCal. Yeah. And you can boast to all your, you know, your, your non-SoCal friends, like, yeah, just one hour traffic on the 405 is just nothing to come here, come, come here to church, you know. And then another thing is just enjoying good, good tacos, Mexican food, or Korean barbecue in K-Town. That's part of it comes with obligations and responsibilities is to, to, to root for your city, right? to enjoy the things that your city likes. And even you, maybe, perhaps consider yourself a citizen of where you're at. In the context of your college education, either maybe at UCLA or USC or, or Long Beach State, I don't want to forget. And that's, that's no in particular order either, okay? So don't think like if you go to UCLA, I ranked it in according to first, second, third. That's not the case, okay? But you view yourselves as citizens of your school, as ambassadors of your school here in SoCal. If you're a student, you, you, you feel a sense of obligation to your school, to invest in the relationships in school, participate in the life of the school, uh, whether it be various clubs or, or groups. You feel a sense of obligation to show everyone how smart you are that you were able to learn the eight clap in the first week of school or the USC Trojan fight song, right? Well, in tonight's passage, Paul has the idea of citizenship in mind, identity. And as we'll see, he wants the Philippians to see the connection between their citizenship, and the stewardship that comes along with it. The responsibilities that comes with being a citizen, the obligations. Paul is helping the believers here in, in, in Philippi walk the walk as Christians, helping them to see the 101s of Christian citizenship. Life is a Christian 101. So tonight, uh, we'll be looking at what it means to live in a manner worthy as gospel citizens as those belonging to the kingdom of Christ. We're citizens of heaven. Look with me at verse 27. Paul starts with this word only. He's basically saying here, uh, focus just on one thing, or another way of phrasing this is, whatever happens, focus on this one, only on this. Uh, you may decide, uh, for, for example, like putting in your context, you may decide to, to go to school here or there, take this job, that job, California, New York, but no matter what choices you make in life, whatever circumstances you may find yourself in, put Christ and the gospel first. Only make sure that this is a priority, that you live in a way that honors and glorifies Christ and the gospel. The focus of this imperative in the uh, to the Philippians is that they live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's not an option, it's a command. And this is what he's trying to emphasize. 
Later on in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, which we're not covering today, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But even as we await the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, comes with present responsibilities and obligations. How we live now matters, even if our future is secured. So the key idea for today, I want us to look at four obligations that we have as gospel citizens. Four obligations that we have as gospel citizens. And the first obligation that we have as a gospel citizen is that we need to be a worthy citizen, a worthy citizen. If you look at verse 27, you'll see the emphasis that Paul places on this one section, this one thing that Paul wants the Philippian believers to pay attention to. It's the idea of living man in the word of the gospel. And much of the following verses, continuing all, even on through chapter 2, hinges on this idea of living manner, a manner worthy of the gospel. And he's going to expand on that. But for now, you might be thinking to yourself, uh, just what does he mean by living in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, first, let's look at what living in a manner worthy of the gospel isn't or is not. Uh, we it doesn't mean that we earn the gospel in any way, that somehow we can earn our salvation, uh, that somehow we need to prove ourselves before we're good enough to, to please God, to, for us to receive God, uh, the, the Christ, into our hearts, to receive the gospel and to accept Jesus Christ, that our salvation is dependent on us. Uh, this couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus didn't die on the cross to save us if we were good enough to be saved. Rather, he went to the cross to die on our behalf because we couldn't be good enough. We often use this word worthy uh, when comparing two different things, though we probably don't think of uh, like a weighted scale, right? For example, some of you can maybe relate to this, like, uh, okay, uh, I'll, I'll try to make this example more anonymized, uh, but basically there was this guy that I know um, who, you know, when he was engaged and had to meet her parents for the first time um, to ask for her uh, to marry uh, their, their daughter, and he approached the parents. He had to fill like some kind of 10-question, kind of like a, a, a essay or, or, or survey, and he had to answer all these questions before, you know, he, he could uh, earn uh, I guess the right or be seen as worthy enough after passing that test to marry uh, their, their daughter, you know, one of the pastors here at Lighthouse. <laughs> or maybe when some of you went jealous, uh, and you're, that's not necessarily right, being jealous, but you're deliberating about whether or not a student at your school is worthy of being nominated valedictorian, top student of the class, or even getting a leadership position in campus ministry, you might be thinking through the lens of worthiness. When we say an athlete is worthy of making it onto the team, we're saying that he's, his stats prove that he's He's, 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 he deserves to be on the team, right? He's recognized. It's deserved. We see it in the terms of merit. But that's not the kind of worthy that Paul has in mind here. So what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Uh, the word for manner comes uh, from a Greek word called axios, and the root meaning of it is tied to the idea of like weighing of a scale, Okay? It's like balancing a scale. We're on one side of this scale, like you think of a scale in like the halls of justice, right, or in law. Or on one side of the scale is this weight, and all, on the other side is this other weight. And so it's the balancing act between this scale, right? And here it means that if the gospel is heavy on your heart, if Christ is valuable and worth a lot to you, that you highly esteem him, well, on one side of the scale, your life on the other side should match that. It should demonstrate that, that you don't take Christ lightly. 
your salvation, that the weightiness of Christ in the gospel impacts your life, your everyday life. That's the idea. Because while you rightly acknowledge the gift of salvation was free to you, it came at a great cost. That grace was freely offered to you, but it wasn't cheap, but came at the price of the Son of God who was slain for us. You see, the gospel we believe is connected to our way of life. Believers are called to live in a, a way that demonstrates the immense value of the gospel in their lives. Paul's basically saying, hey, believers, live out your heavenly citizenship. How you live as a citizen of heaven in this current world matters. Uh, here on earth, we're considered aliens and strangers. Uh, and that should be how we're oftentimes recognized, a difference in our speech, uh, the customs of our lives, the fact that we share certain characteristics with other believers that maybe the world would not understand or value at all. Uh, the sense of the word manner here, or some translations have as conduct, uh, suggests how one is living one's life in connection to public or civic affairs. So the Philippian believers, many of whom which were likely Roman citizens, uh, would have been challenged by Paul's words. They would have understood that there was a certain manner of conduct expected and obligated uh, of them as a citizen of, Ro of Rome, just like many of you are citizens of the U.S., right? But also that you would carry out your responsibilities with that citizenship. Uh, imagine if you had a car for a minute. Uh, how many of you have cars? Okay, and imagine if, you know, you're driving, you're driving, let's just say for a second, you are driving on the 405, that you don't, you actually don't, like, get a ride from someone else for, for, for church on Sundays, but if you do need a ride, you should ask people to, to drive you to, to church, because that's important, and you, you see a, a car driving, you know, with one of those he is greater than I stickers on their, their, their back bumper, or one of these, uh, like, fish, Jesus kind of uh, you know, decals on the back trunk. And as this person is driving in that car, you know, representing themselves as a, as a Christian, you know, he's weaving out, like, dangerously at, like, high speeds, you know, honking, honking, high-beaming to try to just get through and being very selfish. Now, do, would you think that is a good testimony for Christ? Right? What do your actions speak about the faith that you proclaim? Because that speaks more volumes of how you value and place Jesus Christ in your life. And the challenge here uh, for today for you, Beacon, is that every time you walk out of your dorm or your, your apartment, or even when you are in your, your apartment or dorm, that you represent Christ, that you live in a manner that represents one who's been transformed by the gospel, that you appropriately represent before watching world your identity in Christ, even more than your college or Christian fellowship acronym on your shirt or hoodie that you may be representing or, or wearing for you to adorn the doctrine of God based on how you live. So what type of picture is painted about Christ and the gospel if you don't live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Well, if you don't care about all this, you know, talk and just want to have fun and enjoy life for yourself for the remaining years that you have in college and the rest of your life, well, I think that what that reflects is a heart of misplaced priorities misplaced emphasis on things that really don't matter as much in life. For example, you think of parents sacrificing for school. So your parents had to sacrifice for a majority of their lives to pave the way for you to go to school or college. You hear stories about this, how even some parents would delay retirement so they could put their kids into a good school and pay for it. Even maybe even grad school, pay all the way through dental school until they get their doctorate, right? Parents will do that kind of thing. How are you going to use that education? Would you just squander it and just 
party, flunk out of all your classes, would that re resemble, would that reflect your understanding of the sacrifice and cost that your parents made, right? In the same way, that's what we're being challenged here today, to consider the cost, the sacrifice, and then to live in a way that reflects how much we value Christ in our lives. And that brings us to the second obligation as gospel citizens. The second obligation for us as gospel citizens is that we're a consistent citizen. A consistent citizen. Notice in verse 27, Paul says that, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, uh, there, there's a sense there where the idea that Paul has in mind is that believers consider the consistency of their spiritual lives. This is a pattern of lifestyle that's not necessarily dependent on whether Paul is actually physically there or not or whether he's gone or absent from them. Uh, there's a qualitative aspect of walking in a manner worthy of the gospel that's being elaborated. It's easy to simply or you know, pay lip service uh, by, by saying like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do this, but actually a different thing to actually kind of live that out. Is your faith enduring wherever you're at, whatever you're doing? Who you are when no one is looking? This is a matter of integrity here. So Beacon, are you the same among your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends? Um, there's an idea where there's no rest from the obligation we have as Christians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We are to remain faithful in a similar way of how Paul charged Timothy to be ready for faithful ministry, whether in season or outer season. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4.2, Christians are called to persevere. There's a sense of tenacity that's required in the Christian life. Uh, to, the, the, the words here, sometimes to, to, be, to challenge the, the Philippians here, words like standing firm, striving, you have to be determined. These words are militaristic, athletic-type term, uh, terms that uh, give us the picture of soldiers standing firm in line to guard their ground. Kind of like Leonidas in, and his 300 Spartans against the much larger Persian army of Xerxes. We're striving like an athlete who trains for world record-breaking competitions like the Olympics. So Beacon, how consistent are you in exercising and displaying before the world that you're a citizen of God's kingdom and not of this world? Are you consistently participating in, in fellowship and, and church? Are you con or are you inconsistent? Perhaps sacrificing fellowship when life gets busy or as midterms comes up or finals are approaching. For those of you who are maybe serving uh, as campus ministry leaders or on campus ministry, you know, are you consistent in carrying out your responsibilities as a spiritual leader in that context? And the expectations of you as a ministry leader? Or does that, or does only, the only consistency or, or that matters is maintaining a title, a position? Is your character consistent with what is expected to spiritually lead your peers in your context? Do you do things for the worship and praise of, of men to get their attention? Or is your faith only put on display if someone else is there to see it and acknowledge it? Kind of like how some guys and gals like to say, you know, really golly and spiritual things to impress the opposite gender? Or do you walk the walk when everyone is absent? How do your words match your heart your actions? Are you consistently a gospel citizen with integrity, both in your public and your private life? Or is your life really compartmentalized and fragmented 
like a Sunday Christian where Christ can have part of this, but uh, Christ is not in this. The gospel doesn't have anything to say about this in my life. The third obligation that we have as gospel citizens uh, is that we have to be involved citizens. Involved citizens. An involved citizen is one who participates in community with other citizens uh, who's involved. Many of you guys are involved in the life of school and participating in school. Uh, you don't go to school just to listen to lectures, do homework, and just sleep, right? I hope you actually have some kind of semblance of a, a social life uh, for your, your, your two to four years, depending whether you're a transfer student or not. But uh, I hope you do have some kind of social life for, for your sake. In a similar way, you are called and obligated to be involved as a gospel citizen, one who is functionally united with the body of Christ. In verse 27, we see the words, standing firm in one spirit with one mind and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, The phrase for standing firm in one spirit has the idea that you have the same Holy Spirit working in you as every other believer accomplishing the Spirit's purpose in your lives, a unified purpose. So there's a sense of unity there. With one mind means a unified purpose and mindset, which is essentially that, you know, you're to have unity. It's like working on the same team where you set aside your own individual glory for the the success of the team. In a similar way, believers need to set aside their own individual agendas, selfish priorities, for the good of all believers as a whole, the church. And finally, Paul continues on this idea of unity and involves citizens when he says, striving side by side by side. And striving side by side has this idea of soldiers fighting side by side. Therefore, they're to stand united against the advance of the enemy or, or the foe or their opponents. Um, this idea of spiritual war- uh, warfare. It gives the idea of Roman soldiers digging into the ground or standing their line or like linemen in football, right, on the oppo- uh, against the opposing team. So when Christians fight against each other and, and break the peace amongst each other, Rather than living side by side, unity is lost. You must work together and cannot work alone either. The idea of side by side is that you actually have someone at your side walking with you in your faith, and also that you're coming alongside someone else helping them in their faith. Another believer to keep you accountable toward a unified purpose and goal. Think of this analogy for what it means to strive together side by side. Uh, let's say you find yourself in like a, a three-legged race, you know, that's popular at picnics with, with people, and, and they probably, maybe some of them like live in villages somewhere in this world, and they have no idea to do what to do with their giant rice bags, so, oh, let's have like a three-legged race, okay? So just, just use your imagination for a second. And to win this race, the pair need to strive together in unity, right, if they're sharing this bag a single purpose in mind as believers, working as a team to help us move towards the advancement of the gospel. What it means to be an involved citizen is that we're dependent on other believers in the body of Christ, that we're intended to live in Christian community as God intended and designed the body of Christ to do in order to function properly. We aren't meant to pridefully think that we don't need other believers for our spiritual growth. We weren't meant to go out to the mountains and live like an ascetic uh, monk or spiritual hermit, that kind of lifestyle. Christian sanctification, becoming more like Christ, isn't just our individual exercise of faith. The struggles you face as a Christian must be faced within the fellowship of a believing community. 
So as you look at your own life and whether you're a citizen of uh, uh, heaven, are you in fellowship with other fellow citizens? Or are you what I like to call a spiritual hikikomori? Okay, any of you know what that term is? It's a Japanese term for maybe like some of these uh, stereotype is 20, 30-year-old, usually guys who have like no life. They just sit isolated in their room, barely get any sunlight, leave the room. Mom brings dinner home, okay, but the idea is isolation. Are you spiritually isolated and not desiring to stir one another to love and good works? Are you as what Hebrews 10.25 tells us what not to do, neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some? Or are you encouraging one another? and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have the privilege of partnering with others for the gospel, just as the Philippians had with Paul and how they tried to encourage Paul. Begin, how are you encouraging and stirring up one another? Are you an involved citizen? Would you consider yourself one? Are you involved in the church? For example, what is, your, what is even your, your view of the local church? Do you have a love for the church? Or does maybe other things crowd that out to the point where you neglect the church? I think most of you would say that you are in unity with the church uh, because you are involved in a, a parachurch ministry, maybe AA, crew, intervarsity, KCC, KCM, GOC, uh, ministries like that. But realize that the parachurch, while coming alongside to help the church, is not a replacement for the church. And I know that even as I say that right now, Many of you have heard that week in, week out, just as I heard that every week when I went to WCF at UC Riverside. Yet in practice, how many of you are actually living this out? Ask yourself, am I living out what I affirm and say about the local church? Ask yourself that. You see, if you prioritize and spend all your time in campus ministries, does that logically lead or contribute to the unity of the church? Does that constitute being involved citizens, being an involved citizen? Or are you just paying lip service and self-rationalizing your choices? When you commit all your time to campus ministry, you naturally omit time from the church ministry and life of the church. Because let's face it, we're all given 24 hours in a day. We have seven days in a week. How do you account for those hours? The relationships that you're building? If you're heavily involved in campus ministry, but very minimally in the local church, you're, you may be actually be hurting the church because you are not exercising or using your spiritual gifts or playing the role God intended you for within the church. It's how he designed the body of Christ. You are essentially saying, like, like how Paul used in that illustration of the body in 1 Corinthians, that I have no need of you. You're essentially not a functioning member. You're not loving the body of Christ like you ought and with that said, I want to ask you right now, why do you think even unity matters? How does, it, how does it relate to living in a manner worthy of the gospel? I think one way it matters is that in this stage of life, because you're, you're showing by your life to other students on campus what you, what you value, what you prioritize. If you're more involved with other things aside from unity with the church and other, other believers, you're acting out your worldview to them of what matters to, to these students that who may not be Christians. You may not be telling them that, but you're showing them that. As Christians, worshiping Christ uh, matters the most, and I hope you see that our unity matters too. 
if you're not in unity with the church and other believers, you're showing everyone that the power of the gospel doesn't have the power to transform lives, that this faith you have is empty, that it's just an emotional experience worth disregarding and not taken seriously. The fourth obligation that you have as gospel citizens, moving on now, is that you must be a brave citizen, a brave citizen, and it's found in verses 28 to 30. As Paul continues explaining how believers are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, he speaks to the reality of opponents they're going to encounter as they seek out to live out this life. They're going to have opponents. Look with me at verse 28. Paul tells them not to be frightened in anything that their opponents might give them reason to be afraid about. Uh, That word for frightened is an intensive word. In Greco-Roman literature, it refers to animals being frightened, such as horses being sent into battle. Uh, But just who exactly are these who might frighten the believers? Uh, A lot of commentators, you know, kind of argue about that. Uh, Who is it that's frightening these believers? But they couldn't really determine on one, and Paul doesn't actually explicitly say who. He doesn't give any details or specifics. But what we can gather from the context is that these threats come from outside the church, from unbelievers rather than from within the church. Because their end result is their destruction, meaning their eternal death. This is the unfortunate, yet destined outcome for those who continue to reject Christ, who oppose the gospel in their lives, in their attempt to frighten believers, who seek to live a peaceful, quiet, and godly life. Such intimidation of frightened believers in Philippi could have included, uh, you know, threats, you know, frightening um, Uh, by unbelieving friends or family or neighbors, or even authorities such as the government. And one thing, one way that we can view and see suffering is the form of persecution. In 2 Timothy 3.12, we learn that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Uh, When God spoke of how much Paul would have to suffer in his future, when he was converted from a persecutor uh, of Christians to a proclaimer of Christ, Jesus said in Acts 9, 16 about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, for your context here in California, it might look a little different. But I want to point out that the type of suffering promised for believers and considered here is not necessarily just extreme types that we may see in examples in the Bible. But it could also include any type of suffering you face as you try to live a committed life towards Christ in a manner worthy of the gospel. Where every frustration that you face becomes a roadblock to serving Christ. Uh, Beacon, it's not hard to see that the reality of suffering here. It's not hard to see that the good news grew in, in prominence within Philippi, that as citizens of heaven, they would face pressure to silent, be silent in their faith out of a fear of suffering and persecution. Hence why Paul's motivating here to be th- them to be brave and courageous in their faith as he uh, is chained to imperial guards yet still proclaiming Christ. Perhaps your allegiance to Christ feels like a a challenge to you because it challenges the status quo of your non-Christian family or or peers on campus. Uh, You know, I've read stories about how, you know, a young graduate, um, if you take a stand about your Christian faith um, or even views on human sexuality, you know, it could cost you your job. Or another story about a senior surgeon who was open and public about the gospel and bravely proclaiming his faith and shared his faith was removed from his position. There are many more examples of how Christians are called to be brave as gospel citizens. Regardless of the form of suffering you may find yourself in, uh, 
in living a gospel-centered life, uh, I now want us to focus on two encouragements that you can use to fulfill this obligation, to encourage and motivate you to be brave in your faith as a gospel citizen. So rather than being frightened to be brave, two encouragements. The first one is be encouraged by the reality of your salvation. The reality of your salvation. You know, when we persevere in our faith and are steadfast and living faithfully, it's evidence of our salvation. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. It's a sign, okay? You know, suffering means we have opponents causing your suffering. It's a sign that of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that ought to encourage you, to give you hope for the present. This salvation that's secured by God on your behalf. When we remain unshaken by those who oppose the gospel in our lives right now, it demonstrates that eternal salvation awaits us. It gives us great anticipation for the future as we live out our lives now, because this is, this is the will of God. A second encouragement is that suffering is a gift from God, meant to make you more brave. In verses 20 to 30, Paul's challenging believers to see not only that it's a blessing to be saved through, uh, in Christ, but it's also a blessing to, to suffer for Christ's sake. The word for granted means to give a freely out of generosity and used with a positive connotation to it. God gives graciously and favorably to his people the gift of suffering. Now we know this, right? But how many of us, how many of you would actually say that or consider on a day-to-day basis that suffering is a gift? You ever get a gift for your birthday or Christmas that you straight up did not like? For many of us, you know, Christmas quickly approaching, uh, we're thinking about gifts. Now, as Christians, we know that Christmas is not about gifts. It's not about Santa Claus, not about chestnuts roasting open open fire. It's about Jesus Christ uh, taking on the form of man in his incarnation uh, and how he was born of the Virgin Mary only to one day die and to be our substitute, a sacrifice for us so that we might be saved, okay? But bear with me now, this idea of Christmas gifts. If we are real with ourselves, we like Christmas gifts, okay? We like Christmas gifts. Okay, I remember one of these gifts that I wanted really badly as a young child was a, uh, a Game Gear, which was uh, made by Sega Genesis. Okay, I don't know if they're still in business. That shows you how old I am. But it's like a Nintendo Game Boy. And I thoroughly enjoyed this gift. I was so satisfied. I would play hours and hours every day for weeks and months on end. I loved this present. And I was really thankful that my aunt bought this for me for Christmas. But fa- fast forward, as I got older, the gifts changed, you know. You usually get better gifts when you're younger. Later on in life, I got another gift from my uncle, okay? And, um, yeah, so what I got for, gris, uh, for Christmas was something that just left me saying, what is this? Why did you give me this? And one of the strangest gifts I, I ever got was gigantic underwear, <laughs> like 510XL. I don't think they even sell that at normal stores. But he, he bought that for me. Okay? And so I, I was wondering, like, why would you do something like that? I was like, oh, it's, it's just, a gra- uh, just a gag gift, you know? I just wanted to see your reaction. Oh, here's your real gift, by the way. But it was one of those gifts that left me thinking, like, what is this? I don't want it, right? It's an unwelcome gift, right? It's something that you would just give away at, um, like, a white elephant gift exchange. And perhaps some of you had similar experiences like that before, but maybe not that extreme, where you said, graciously said, thank you, but no thanks, right? The unwanted gift, something that you did not want. You didn't feel you either needed or wanted, so you're just going to give it away. You'd rather someone else have it. 
And that's probably exactly how we feel when it comes to suffering in our lives. We like the idea of getting a gift, but maybe not the second part of the gift itself if we don't like it, the so-called suffering. Now, at this point, I think it's important to point to what this suffering is, the type of suffering is likely meant in this passage. And the most immediate context uh, helps us to see that this is likely the kind of ex- the suffering that we experience as a d- direct result of our Christian testimony, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, suffering by association with Christ, by identifying with him. It's a type of suffering that challenges us to count the cost of following Christ, that believing and following Jesus is not necessarily easy. It doesn't necessarily promise you're going to have a, a nice, you know, uh, a, a job afterwards. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll do well in school and be respected by your peers. But perhaps you might even be ridiculed, looked down upon, discriminated against. In, in a certain cases, in other parts of the world, even imprisoned, tortured, or faced with death. And that's because that as you stand firm, striving for the faith of the gospel, because you have received this gift of salvation, you will also face suffering because it's part of the gift package. Standing firm in unity with other believers for the sake of Christ in all your life, either on campus with friends and family or in the workplace, will certainly make you stand out. Uh, You'll be marked out as being different. But we also need to see that suffering is not optional. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a reality for believers rather than the exception. It isn't an extra credit assignment well, you probably don't like extra credit, assignment, uh, extra credit assignments. Maybe you do, but you like the, f- the part that it can boost your grade, right? But not the, necessarily the extra work that comes with that assignment, all that extra research and work. So how is suffering God's gift for us? It seems contradictory, but one thing we need to keep in mind, as Pastor Kim says, and he's preached on this topic before, is to see suffering through the lens or filter of God's love. Suffering is a grace to help us grow in conforming to Christ as we identify with his very own suffering in this world and we're faced with opposition and we're faced with persecution in our lives. As said earlier, it reminds us that our suffering will be vindicated on the day when we meet the Lord again and spend eternity with him. That suffering is temporal and it moves us, it draws our gaze towards the eternity at at hand. Our future redemption. It also helps us to see our own weakness and our need to depend on God and even on depend on others in the church. As we put ourselves in the pathway of grace and we welcome the church community into our lives, are encouraged to be open and vulnerable, knowing it's for our good and growth as believers. Beacon, I hope this challenges you to be bold uh, as a gospel citizen where you are in your school, maybe part-time work, you're working with friends, and even your family come this Thanksgiving and Christmas, that you would embrace suffering for Christ's sake and make an impact as a gospel citizen wherever you are. Uh, Do not forget the fact that you have an opportunity to evangelize, to reach the lost in your school. Uh, You have an opportunity to speak about your faith in Jesus Christ confidently and to share with non-believers how you choose to prioritize the church and Christian fellowship when your classmates perhaps ask you, uh, why are you not going to this during this week or this night on during this weekend, you have an opportunity to share with them to not only even invite them to, to Christ, your Christian club, to invite them to church, but the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, to share your faith, how you've been transformed uh, by the gospel, and that now leads to reoriented priorities and that the world will be able to see that 
to be brave in sharing uh, your thankfulness for the gospel, for Christ, for the gift of salvation, for the blessing of fellowship, for the blessing of finding a church community uh, with your family, perhaps, when you come home this Thanksgiving. Uh, let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for just the gift of salvation. Uh, oftentimes, we presume upon grace We act like salvation is a small thing, Lord, yet everything else in our lives crowds out the gift that we have received, Lord, that we don't reflect on it, uh, that we don't think much about Christ uh, where we live. Uh, but I pray that you would challenge us to live in a manner worthy, that we would weigh the cost of your son, condescending to the level of taking on the form of man, living a perfectly righteous life, and then dying on the cross on our behalf so that we might be saved, Lord. And to see that precious gift, to see the cost so that we might be saved, though freely given, and that we would live in a manner, live in a way that reflects how much we value that gift, how much we value Christ, Lord, wherever we're at, whatever we're doing, and that we would love others in, in the church as well, and that we would be unified, Lord, and that you would be pleased through our lives as we seek to glorify you uh, in all that we do. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.